0: the guest has arrived the host is prepped and ready ladies and gentlemen this is one-on-one with bill alexander hi everyone bill alexander with you on a wonderful day hope everything's going fine for you and welcome to one-on-one with bill alexander today we're going to be talking to a former representative in the state of Pennsylvania by the name of Movita Johnson-Harrell. Movita, how are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. How are you? I'm doing really, really good. I'm so glad to have you on the program. Could you explain to my audience a little bit about who you are?
1: Absolutely. So thank you for inviting me to be on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So I am a five-time co-victim of homicide. I come from five generations of poverty and addictions, and fought really hard to protect my family, and still lost my sons to gun violence.
0: And when I when I, I read some of that, and I was amazed uh, the generations of, of of abuse and poverty that you lived in, but you also were able to get out of it, and you received your bachelor's degree. And a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, which is not an easy thing to do.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I actually got clean September fourth, September fifteenth, nineteen ninety four. Um, I was twenty eight years old, and I got clean for my children. Right, I wanted. I wanted a better life for my children. At the time, they were two, three, four, and eight. Um, So I went into a rehab for women with children, and I got clean from an active crack addiction. And at 30 years old, I went back to school, and I got my high school diploma, and I spent the next five years full-time in school. I got two degrees from the local community college, and I got three degrees from the University of Pennsylvania. And it was really, so with the University of Pennsylvania, undergrad was really difficult because it's really not structured for a Black Muslim woman, right? Okay. So to be, an, to be an adult student in a white Ivy League university, I'm going full-time, mind you. I'm working two part-time jobs, going to school full-time, raising four children. It was really difficult. And I was very relieved to get to the School of Social Work where it was more open and relaxed.
0: The one thing that I caught in the beginning, and I didn't realize this, that you were, you were a substance abuser yourself. How many years were you, were you use it? So, you know, I always share bill that I used
1: for 28 years with, or without my permission, there was a running joke in my family that they put wine and beer in my baby bottle. And they blew marijuana in my face. And I picked up a drug of my own free will on March 30th, 1975. It was Easter Sunday. It was 21 days before my ninth birthday. And it was a direct result. I picked up a glass of alcohol. It was a direct result of seeing my father murdered.
0: Holy cow. You and I are the same age. You're actually about three months older than I am. So, really? Yeah. So I find that interesting because me being born in a white middle-class home, never heard of these types of problems in a setting that you've come from, but yet you were able to, I don't want to say work through it, but you, you suffered through it and then realized at the end how things could be better. And that's just amazing to me that you had enough ambition, enough pride, enough gumption to be able to get up and do that. Because a lot of people in our society today that are in the same situation you're in just feels like the system is out to get them and it's not worth trying. And you said your kids were your motivating factor to get out of this lifestyle.
1: Absolutely, everything that I've done you know, since getting clean has been for my children, Bill. And it was because I was able to create the kind of family that I always wanted, right? My mother lived with her own trauma and her own abuse and her own substance abuse issues and her own mental illness. So there were things that she couldn't do. And it's not because she didn't want to. It was because she didn't have the capacity. And I knew that I... I wanted to break that cycle for my children, right? I wanted better for my children. I didn't want them to grow up the way that I had grown up. So when it came, and and let me tell you, my divine intervention for getting clean was actually in Philadelphia, we have the Department of Human Services, right? It was DHS, once again, knocking on my door, threatening to take my children away. And what the lady said to me, Bill, was she said, listen, we know you love your children. She said, we've talked to your neighbors. We talked to your family. We know you love these children. She said, but they could no longer live there. So at the end of my road with active addiction, you know, I lived in the family home. It was a three-bedroom home. I was living out of one room in filth and squalor, no running water on the second floor. And I couldn't even imagine how I got there. But it was like when this woman said, this woman literally said something to me that no one else in my adult life had ever said. She said, you might want to get some help. And I said, please tell me how. And that was the beginning of a new life for me and my, me and my family.
0: Now, I have a question for you because I'm on the other side of the state of Pennsylvania. I'm just south of the city of Pittsburgh. And you're outside of Philadelphia, correct? Okay. I live in Philadelphia. Oh, OK. So my question is, and again, I'm a middle-aged white guy and um I I I I don't know how to, I don't know how to ask this question but I'm going to try my best to do it because I have never been in a in the shoes of someone of color. Okay, I don't know what it's like even though in my in my background there is some um, people of his, Hispanic descent but by looking at me you can't tell. With that being said, did you feel the system was stacked against you because of not who you were, but what color you were? Absolutely, Bill.
1: So here's the thing, I often say I'm a triple threat. You know, it wasn't even popular for me to be Muslim. My mother converted to Islam in 1976. I was 10 years old, and I was the only Muslim in my neighborhood, and I was actually teased and ridiculed by Black folks. right? But even going through everything that I've been through, I definitely felt like, you know, I was on the outside looking in and that okay. this system was not created and catered. It did not cater to making sure that people who look like me and who come from where I come from mm-hmm. had everything that they needed to be successful. Right. So here's the thing. I live literally I'm five generations out of West Philly. I lived literally 15 minutes from the University of Pennsylvania. But as a child, that wasn't accessible to me. Right. It it wasn't created for little black kids that live in that neighborhood. So even going there as an adult student, being the only Muslim in my class in many instances, being the only woman of color in my class in many instances, I felt like I literally was fighting an upstream battle. I always had to fight harder than everyone else. I always had to give more than everyone else in order to be successful.
0: Now, what I think is really interesting is you were a member of the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania, which is, in my opinion, I hate to say this, but it's true, an old boys network. And you were coming in as Black, as a Muslim. How, from your past, I mean, how did you get from where you were to where you went in that period of time? Because honestly you only hear these stories in movies, you never see anything like this happen. Because you came from a a, a impoverished lifestyle, you were addicted to crack, then you got out, you went to school, got out of school, and then you became a member of the House of Representatives. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, so Bill, being in politics was never in my to do list, right? Never had any hopes or dreams or aspirations. In fact, when people called me a politician, I asked them, please don't call me that because it was always a dirty word in in my mind, right? Um, But what happened was when my son, Charles was murdered, in gun violence. And here in Philadelphia, I went in front of um, legislators, city and state who look like me and who look like you, right? Right. Begging for specific strategies that had been successful in Philadelphia, begging to get those strategies funded. And no one would do that, right? I sat in the city council hearing in 2015, Bill, and I said, if we do not implement specific strategies now, in five to seven years, this city is going to exceed 500 homicides. Philadelphia has just exceeded 500 homicides. Wow. So what I did was I ran for office because I wanted to go up to Harrisburg and bring the money back for, my, for those strategies.
0: Now when you were in Harrisburg and I know a few representatives, one you actually know and when I when I think of Harrisburg I don't think of them bringing money back to their communities. I think of them doing deal making for larger larger product projects that usually don't work for the problem but are actually, enable the cause of the problem sometimes. I just don't see Harrisburg working the way it's supposed to. When you were there, did you see Harrisburg work? I did not see Harrisburg work. And it was
1: like, I was the misfit in the crowd, right? It was like when you try and force the round peg into a square hole. But let me tell you, I actually created a relationship as soon as I got up there with the former um, minority leader. And I went to him as soon as I got there. And I said, you know why I'm here. I just want to end gun violence in Philadelphia. And I asked for money to take back to Philadelphia. And and as a six-month freshman, I did exactly what I campaigned on. I did exactly what I said I was going to do. I bought back $1.3 million for the GBI strategy for Philadelphia, which just went into full effect three weeks ago.
0: Wow, that is amazing. So now that you're out of politics, well you're out of Harrisburg, let's just say that, because I think in the situation you're in right now, you're always going to be a politics. Um, you got involved because of the gun violence that was happening in Philadelphia, and you lost a son to gun violence. How did what happened? Well, how did your son become one of the statistics?
1: Um, so I literally moved my family from Philadelphia on January 15, 2008 to get my two black sons and my two black daughters out of Philadelphia. I moved to right outside of Philly to Lansdowne, Delaware County, 20 block radius dry town. You can't even buy a beer and everybody knows everybody's dog's name, Bill. And I thought that we were safe. And I went on about the business of living my life and raising my family. And on January 13th, 2011, my 18 year old son, Charles Johnson came back to Philadelphia to pick up his sister to make sure she was safe two boys walked up to the car that I had just bought my daughter and put four bullets in my son because they thought that he was someone else. So what I tell people is you can't move away from the problem. Eventually, this problem is going to touch everybody in this country because that's how much is going on each and every day. That's all we're hearing in the media is gun violence. So we began to fight. We created the Charles Foundation. Charles is an acronym for creating healthy alternatives results in less emotional suffering. You know, I created some amazing programs. One of them still runs out of District Attorney Larry Krasner's office, the Philadelphia CARES program, which actually does two things. It engages and empowers people who are newly experiencing homicide um, by pairing them with peer, peer mentors, people who have in the past experienced gun violence, and it helps them to get through the situation, but it also does another thing, it's supposed to stop retaliation. So we were, we've were we been fighting for 10 years, my son has been gone, fighting to end gun violence, and I mean, just trying to get the job done. And that's why I went up to Harrisburg, because I wanted to stop the slaughter. You know, we have all of this stuff going on in the cities that seems to promote gun violence, right? I mean, why should a mother of a dead child have to leave her life, run for office, and go to Harrisburg to bring back money for a gun violence strategy. When we spend multi-million dollars of dollars in um, trauma bays in Philadelphia, Presbyterian and Temple University, You know we spend bill- a billion dollars in police overtime in Philadelphia. We spend money for judges and prosecutors and defenders and doctors and nurses but we can't find strategies that we know are going to target these young people who are likely to pick up the guns. So that has been my life's work, like to empower these young people to make better decisions, but also to make sure that we're doing things in our community to stop the slaughter.
0: Now, with you with you saying that, the one thing that I and I have and you, and you mentioned your son 18 at the at the age that he was shot, correct? Yes. When you talk to your son about going out in the community day or night, did you give him a warning about what could happen to him if he was not vigilant about his own safety?
1: So, I mean, I left Philadelphia because of a conversation I had with my sons. And in the summer of 2007, my sons were 14 and 16. And they came to me and they said, Mom, we know nine boys killed in this neighborhood. And I sat and I listened to my sons and I consoled my sons and I told them that I would do everything in my power to protect them. But here's the thing. My sons didn't carry guns. My sons weren't out there hurting people. Both of my sons worked every day caring for over 100 chronically mentally ill adults. You know, I had one person say to me, well, you know, um, and I know that they didn't mean any harm, Bill, but wrong place. Wrong time. My son had the right to go wherever he wanted to go, right? He had the right to go and pick up his sister to make sure she was safe. But here's the thing we have so many guns that inundate urban communities, right? Illegal guns. Here's the thing I have no beef with the Second Amendment. If you can legally own a gun, I think we have too many guns. But if you can legally own a gun and you know how to use a gun, I don't have any issues with that. My issues are with the illegal guns that inundate communities of color that wind up in the hands of people with no common sense, no conflict resolution skills, and they don't know what they're doing. And this is how they're dealing with their issues.
0: Now, you you, met, you just said um, resolution skills. Now, what are you doing With these young people, are you getting them before the guns get into their hands? And I know that's a we're painting with a broad brush by saying that we think kids of that age will all have guns, which we know that's not true. But are you teaching these kids the conflict resolution skills to deal with problems, to deal with other people? Um, Because one thing I've noticed and I've worked with some young people, too, they have no communication skills, let alone resolution skills because they're so buried into their phones, they don't know how to have a dialogue. So are you working with these kids with your organization on how to do this?
1: Great question, Bill. So the Charles Foundation does three specific things to work with young people. One, we're trying to get to them younger and younger. We go into elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools, and we do presentations on gun violence. We do presentations on conflict resolution. We do presentations on life skills and communication. The second thing that we do is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the same day work program. The same day work program is a program where an adult can go and join up with an organization and that organization will pay them a hundred dollars cash every day that they work to clean up the community. We do that specifically with young people, right? Okay. We, we, we bring them in, we engage them, we teach them skills. We have classes. We're teaching them, um, Uh, community responsibility, financial management. They go out, they clean the community, and we pay them $100 a day. Now, the benefit to this is that all of the kids we have, we don't get the church kids, right? We get the kids directly off the street by word of mouth. Several of our children have already been shot. Several of them have been shot at. All of them, 100%, have lost someone to gun violence. And you would be, I mean, if you look at my social media page, uh, in the Charles Foundation social media page, you'll see these kids, you'll see them engaging each other from across the city, where, you know, in some of these communities, they're beefing against each other. But they come together, they learn how to work with one another, they learn how to engage one another, and they're learning skills. The third thing that we do is, and this is the thing that I went up to Harrisburg to bring the money back for, In 2012, we did something called the Focus deterrence Strategy. The real name of it is GVI, Group Violence Intervention. It was brought to Philadelphia by the former head of the Gun Violence Task Force. His name is Brian Lentz. The strategy is created by a criminologist named David Kennedy out of John Jay College in New York City. This strategy, and listen, I technically... But the la- I've spent the last five years of my life fighting to bring the strategy back to Philadelphia. Why, Bill? Because when we did it in 2012, 2013, and 2014, the city of Philadelphia only gave us $150,000 for the strategy, right? That was one person's salary for two years. Even in a severely underfunded strategy, we had over a 35% reduction in gun violence in the pilot. This strategy works. Everywhere it goes, it works. And in 2015, two of those boys that they said would never put down the guns, they were going to die in the streets. Two of those boys came in, participated in the strategy. It's a positive peer pressure model, right? They get prioritized. If everybody's, if somebody in their group shoots, all of them get prioritized. They have bad cases, they're going to the front of the line. But if they want to come out, you need social services, they get prioritized. You need drug and alcohol treatment, you get prioritized. Mental health treatment, school, diapers, milk, anything that they need, they get prioritized. We had over a 35% reduction in the first year. So what we do is we engage those likely to kill or be killed. There's only the top 3% in urban communities It sounds like it's the wild, wild West and everybody's shooting, right? Mm -hmm. But it's usually only 3% of that community that's shooting. That's not a real large amount. So what we do is we get them, we engage them, we prioritize them, and the gun violence comes down.
0: Now, with with you saying that, I I have a lot of things going through my head right now, is you mentioned about going into the schools. And the elementary school kids, the junior high school kids, I think you can reach them easier than the high school kids because the high school kids have seen more and they've probably been sold a bill of goods more than one time or not about how this is going to improve. But does the program actually focus on your sophomores, your juniors and seniors to get them out of this mindset and start pushing them into some type of educational or trade programs so they can find better ways to utilize their time. Because what I'm hearing from you and what I've heard from other people, a lot of reason why these kids are doing it is because of, of illegal drug trade, um, running guns, all this other, all these kinds of things. That they're trying to find something they're good at, that's what they're able to do. But if we move them into an education program that is going to be productive, then we may be able to keep them off in in going into a positive direction. Are you seeing the same thing?
1: Absolutely. So the GBI strategy actually focuses on 15 and older, literally 15 15 to 25. And what it does is it provides, it, so my whole fight has been addressing the social determinants that lead to gun violence, right? Addressing bo- poverty, addressing lack of education, addressing um, the inability to get them drug and alcohol treatment or mental health treatment, addressing them not being able to get jobs. Well, if you can't write, you can't get a job, right? And we... Right disinvested in communities of color, and that's why we're seeing what we see now. We've taken money out of the schools. They don't teach our children anymore. They're literally holding pins until they go to prison, right? We've disinvested in these communities. They live in food deserts. They live in housing scarcity. They don't have education. So when you create a program like GBI and you do it right, then you are addressing the social determinants that lead to gun violence. You are providing them a, a door. And here's my experience with these people, even the ones who are known to shoot, they all want out, but there's no door. And when right. you provide a door and you help them, listen, we've had some of the most hardcore shooters come through that door. My husband and I will be walking through Home Depot, right? And I'll hear somebody say, Miss Mo, they all call me Miss Mo. I'll hear somebody say, Miss Mo, and it'll be a young man that we saw in GVI five years ago. And he'll say, "Thank you, Miss Mo. You saved my life."
0: And that and that is fantastic. And the one thing you did say there that, that pops out at me because of the previous uh, uh, governor in in Harrisburg that we had, who was more focused on getting rid of public education than putting money into public education, because for some reason he was looking towards the Midwest. That that's what he wanted to do. What they were doing in Michigan, but. Do you see that the other people on the other side of the aisle, and I will say Republicans and conservatives, are taking money out of public education purposely to create this type of poverty-stricken education system? Because it's not just happening in Philadelphia. It's happening in rural Pennsylvania, where I'm at right now, because we're seeing money being pulled out of these schools, and these kids have no – no focus, no desire to do anything further because they're getting nothing out of it because money's been pulled out. You have a lack of funding. You have a lack of teachers. You have all this stuff and then throw COVID in the middle of it. Now you've got just a total disaster and now you're trying to rebuild an education system. If you had the opportunity to rebuild the education system, what would you do to fix it?
1: Um, I would start by funding public schools properly. Right. Um, And here's the thing you said about the Republicans. It's not just the Republicans that's disinvested in education and communities of color. You know, we now have a war in um, Philadelphia where there's a toss up between public education or charter school. Oh, right. And charter school gets the funding and public education has been been defunded. Right. And you have you have people who look like me, who hold office, who's getting huge amounts of money from the charter school people um, in order to keep them funded. So it's not just the, I'm sorry, it's not just the Republicans.
0: <laughs> well, my opinion is education should not be a business and that's what it's Absolutely. turned into. Absolutely,
1: thank you. Uh, be-
0: because of what it's turned into and the whole idea of what they're doing in Harrisburg and I don't care if they're left or right, they're not the ones that should be in charge. You should not let politicians control education the same way you should not let politicians control healthcare, because that is not their circle of expertise. Not that I know they have any, but if you're going to create public policy, then you better have someone that understands what the policy is before they create it instead of what we're dealing with right now and listening to you, you're one of the few that, that went in had a background in something, dealt with something, had a solution and tried to get the solution fixed. Unfortunately, you weren't there very long.
1: Yeah, I wasn't there very long at all. And I don't know if you saw my swearing in. So it was amazing yes. that I even, i it was amazing that I even won, right? Because they really didn't want me up there in the first place. And my swearing in, I mean, what Representative Burwoods did that fire in Brimstone, you're not welcome. And I believed her and I believe them.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you this, and this is really off subject of what we're talking about today. I don't get people. I haven't got people for 55 years, but in the last 15, 20 years, nobody is tolerant. We don't get along with anybody anymore. Did and I the thing you is, What? oh, you're there. I, I see you. <laughs> Abby's not you messing with me. the, the Oh, no, you ain't doing nothing. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Anyway. Anyway, back to what I was saying, but the last 20 years, I've noticed it's gotten worse that we're no longer tolerant to other people. It's either where we associate with people like us, uh, individuals, or we just don't talk to anybody. And what frustrates me is I don't understand why you got the the uh, the problems that you had being sworn into Harrisburg. Your religion should have nothing to do with who you are as a person, because I am not going to your place of worship. I'm not doing that. I'm going to where you are going to work for my community, so on and so forth. And what we've ended up doing in society is where we tie religion to everything is what's making society worse today. And that's just my opinion.
1: Absolutely, and here's the thing you know, even when that happened to me and, and and here I had 55 of my friends and family multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic in the well of the House because I won a special election right. right And for that to happen was not only embarrassing for me, I think it was embarrassing for the rep and it was embarrassing for the entire House of Representatives.
0: Did, did, did she ever come back and apologize to you for that or did it just go away?
1: She did not. I actually, and she avoided me. And one day, I mean, Divine Intervention placed us both in the same hallway at the same time. And she couldn't get away from me at this point. And I, I confronted her and I said, Rep- Representative Burrow was, I would really love to have the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with you. Can I have my LA, set my legislative assistant, yeah. set up a meeting? And she said, absolutely. And my LA reached out several times and she would never sit down and meet with me. That, that, but guess just, what she but, but Bill. Guess what she did in that moment? She that? embraced me. Really? She hugged me.
0: Wow. Um too bad there weren't cameras there to see that and hold that memory because again, I do you think that that what she did on the house floor the day you were being sworn in was done for show for her constituents or that's the was, way I she think, really I think, feels? I
1: think the whole thing was planned. I think, I think leader speaker Terzai had something to do with that because at the time the house was being sued about the prayer, right? Right. And at this time, only representatives in the house could actually do the prayer. So they really picked a representative who was an evangelist who, you know, they allowed to get up there and Terzai never stopped her. What happened was that Representative um, Margot Davidson, who was standing behind me to my right, began yelling after she went on and on and right. on, you know, not knowing Muslims love Jesus, right? But I mean, <laughs> telling me that every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will speak his name. And she praised Donald Trump for standing with Israel against Palestine. And that's when Margot Davidson started yelling objection. But it wasn't until then
0: that somebody stopped it. That To me, that is just downright amazing that it went that far, that no one else other than her had enough guts to stand up and say, just just stop. I mean, or to boo, to do something just to stop this inappropriate prayer that was going on. Because again, what she was trying to do was she was, I hate to say this, she was trying to intimidate you. And that's what a lot of people do on the right because they start talking about things that make you feel uncomfortable and they know if they make you feel uncomfortable that they can get their way. And that, to me, that is just wrong. I, I, I just don't understand it. I never have, I never will. And um, I've gotten and what a quite lot, a few what arguments. A lot of
1: people, what a lot of people don't realize, Bill, I didn't mean to cut you off I apologize, yeah. but after that, I started receiving hate mail and death threats.
0: I, again, j- just amazing. Um, no one knows who you are as an individual. No one knows what struggles you went through to life to get to where you're at. And just because you may dress a little bit differently, or because they, your, your, your religion is something different that's not the mainstream, they feel the need they can do that. Yep. I to me, I don't get it. We are all human beings. And when I went to school years ago, I took a class that was dealing in a multicultural society. I loved the class. And it was talking, and again, like I said, you and I are in the same same age bracket. Is that we were much more tolerant in the 80s and 90s, in my opinion. I could be wrong. I could have been living it through rose-colored classes, but within the last 20 years, it's gotten much worse. And I and I understand why and why people blame certain people for certain things, and I get it because they need somebody to villainize. But why we're Why we're making our own neighbors the villain does not make any sense to me whatsoever. And I feel and I, and I feel bad for you that you had to be subject to that. And I am so very thankful that that individual was not my representative because trust me, if it would have been. They would have had an earful that day because there is no way that that's what the constituency should want from their representative.
1: Absolutely. It was it was a pretty awful experience. But what I did was I couldn't I I couldn't let her have control of that day. Right. It was a historical day for Philadelphia and for Pennsylvania. So I turned it around. You know, when when I had my reception with all of my family and friends that had come up that day and with the other representatives that came, you know, I told them that that wasn't going to be the way that the day left off. We were going to celebrate this historical moment and we were going to come up here and do the work that I came to do. And I did exactly that.
0: And that, and again, I, I am so thankful that you did. Um, hard to believe we've been talking for a half hour already, and we haven't even talked about your book yet. <laughs> so you have a book coming out called Phoenix Ascending. Can you tell me what the book's about?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I have my book actually um, came out on September the 20th okay. of this year. It would have been my son Charles's 29th birthday. So I intentionally set that date. Within five hours of the release of my book, it became an Amazon bestseller. Um, and the book is actually a memoir. It goes from my earliest memory, which is one of domestic violence, and it goes all the way up until my son's trial um, in 2013. And the thing for me, you know, it's really, odd. people say, well, how did you write a book? You know, when you were doing all this gun violence work and you became a state rep, I literally started writing this book 28 years ago, Bill, while I was still in an active addiction.
0: Wow. So when you, when you look back at what you started writing in, while you were addicted, can you see just in the writing how you changed as a person? Absolutely,
1: there was a whole transformation process. You know, I started writing this book. I had my only brother was murdered on July first, nineteen ninety one, and I started writing this book after my brother was murdered. And I figured that the book would go from my earliest memory to my brother's homicide. And then, as life continued, so did the book. You know, from time to time, I would pull it out. I would add more to it. Then, you know, I went, I got clean, that got added to it. And I would just work on it over the years. And it never seemed too much of a priority until last year. And I had a conversation with my son, Dante, and he said, you know, mom, you need to finish my last surviving son, right? He said, mom, you need to finish your book. And I started putting it all together. This was after I resigned from the House of Representatives. And, you know, I was about, I had gotten my final edits back in the end of February and I was working to pull it all together. My daughter went into end stage renal failure in July of 2020. So I was working on losing weight to try and give her a kidney. So it was all of this Mm -hmm. stuff going on, but I'm still trying to finish the book. And then on March 5th, my son, Dante, went to California for a weekend trip and was murdered in a random drive by. Oh, so it was really hard. You know, I pushed myself because I know my son really wanted this book. And the next book, which comes out next year, he really wanted this project finished. Um, so I really pushed myself because literally I, I live with something called broken brain syndrome, which affects how you, you take in information okay. and affects how you put it back out. It's, some, it's, it's similar to having dyslexia right? And it's hard for me to read. So the one thing that people will notice is, is when you look at the font of my, the text, the font is larger, and there's more spacing. And that's for people who live with depression or broken brain. Um, it makes it easier for them to read.
0: I did not realize that, but that makes sense. So your, your second son, uh, Deontay, who, who passed away last year. This year? Or this year. I'm sorry. Oh, it was 2021. Yes. Oh, wow. I thought it was 2020. Okay. But anyway, this year, he was in California. He was there for a a trip, just a vacation type setting.
1: Yeah. So he left on March 4th and he left the house and he kissed me a bunch of times. And he said, he did did the same thing every time. He would kiss me. He would say, I'll see you later, mom. And he would leave the house. And my son kissed me. Kissed me like five times. And I looked at him and he said, I love you, mom. I'll see you later. And I said, are you okay, Dante? And he said, yeah, I'm good. And he said, I'll see you later. And the next time I saw my son, he came home, um, about 10 days later in the box.
0: So where, I mean, was it a drive-by? So just random, there was no sense of it, nothing whatsoever.
1: So I actually went to California. He was killed on March 5th. Um, Him and four friends went to California. I went to California on his birthday um, to the spot where he was shot, that's April 30th. And I met with the homicide detectives and they told me my son didn't have anything to do with anything. I met with the man who my son was shot in front of his store. It's a little strip mall. And the man who is our age, 55 years old, he's been in a wheelchair since he was 15 he was shot in a random drive-by and he said, you know, he said, your son was a pleasant young man. I shook his hand. He said he literally wasn't out of the car 10 minutes. My son had just gotten out of the car. Someone ran up, shot into the crowd, shot four people. And my son was the only fatality. And what the man said was, somebody could run up right now and just shoot into the crowd because it's a bunch of us out here.
0: Right. So your two daughters, um, They have seen violence from the inside with with dealing with both their brothers being killed. How have you discussed it with them about what's going on and and their possibility of having children in the future, bringing them into this world and how to prepare them for situations like this?
1: Yeah, so here's the thing. I have four grandchildren with no fathers. So Charles was engaged to be married Um, 26 days after he died. His only child was born exactly five weeks later. My daughter, who he went to pick up, who lives with trauma and PTSD. Right. um, Which actually triggered her hypertension, which killed her kidneys. She needs a kidney. She had a baby five weeks after Charles's baby uh, was born. So those two young those two boys are 10. My grandsons are 10 years old. So they were born into trauma. Right. And then Dante's two children are four years old and nine years old. They're the same age me and my sister were when my father was murdered. So this is a part of our lives. We have real conversations with our our grandchildren about violence. We have real conversations with our grandchildren and our daughters about what's going on. And they know like our lives have been like I've spent my life not just fighting for everybody else's children to be safe. Right. I, I wanted my children safe. Even before Charles died, we were that family in the community because I've always been hypervigilant about violence. We were that community. We were that family who took pet kids into our cars and our SUVs and took them up to the beach. We packed them into our SUVs and took them up to the Pocono Mountains, right? Introduced them to sand. I was a Girl Scout troop leader for 10 years. Like we were always that family because in my mind,
0: I figured if we could save the village, the village would save my children. Right. But that's just not the reality. So with everything going on and, and, and all the work you're doing and, and the, the achievements that you're making, um, granted, and I know it's such a bigger problem. Do you ever get tired and say, let someone else deal with this now?
1: I am exhausted, Bill. <laughs> you know, and here's the thing. People see me and they see that I keep getting up and I keep putting yeah. one foot in front of the other and I keep helping people and I can only attribute that to my higher power. I can only attribute that to God, right? Because I'm just doing God's work because if I were left in my own devices, I would literally be in someone's psych unit with both of my arms tied behind my back in a white jacket. For me to get up every day is a struggle. Trauma lives in my body. Um, I miss my sons every single day, but I know that if I don't do something to continue to try and protect my grandchildren and everybody else's children, that we're all gonna be lost. So I just keep getting up and I keep doing the work. I don't know what else to do.
0: When when you talked about your other son being killed in California, the the program that you're doing in in, uh, Philadelphia, in that area, have you looked at taking the program national?
1: Absolutely. So the program, there is a program in um, one part of Los Angeles. But something that we're doing and I haven't really talked about it much since we went to California is we have a national grassroots movement going on for the communities. Because here's the thing. Those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Right. Right. And we often oftentimes in urban communities, we look outside our communities for somebody to come in on a white horse to save us. That's not what's going to happen. We need to address this problem ourselves. The Charles Foundation in 10 years has never solicited a penny. You know why? Because we don't want anybody telling us what we can or cannot do. Right. But we've done the work. We engage the young people. We feed the community. We make sure that seniors can come out on their porch and feel like they can be safe on their porches to sit outside. So we need to be addressing this in the communities that we live in. So we started a grassroots movement. You know, District Larry Krasner is still a very dear friend. He's connected me with some people across the country, and we're doing a movement. We're, we got to get this done because our children's lives are literally at stake.
0: You made a comment earlier in the interview about media. Do you think the media is glorifying what's going on with the violence?
1: Absolutely. So. So the media does does a couple different things. The first thing that we know about the media is if it bleeds, it leaves.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Right. So they actually help to promote the narrative that all black people in black communities are bad people because that's where all of this gun violence is going on. Right. They're not like really talking about the good stories that's coming out of our communities, like our children graduating high school and being able to read, like our children going off to college, like our children who are out here feeding the homeless during Thanksgiving. They don't really promote that stuff, but every single day you hear about gun violence on TV, every single day you hear about homicide, and then it's just a blur, right? As if that person's life really meant nothing, and they glamorize
0: it. So, how do you th- how do you change the narrative? How do you change them from doing that?
1: So, there's something going on in Philadelphia right now where some really conscious um, media people have uh, taken a stand against that and are talking about how the stories are reported out of urban communities so there are some people that are talking about that and talking about you know creating a different narrative
0: and and i hope and i hope it works because i think it needs to happen everywhere because of what we're dealing with and even the national stories that have happened over the last three weeks it it again we are so focused and so well, so um focused on these things that you're right. We're not looking at the positives coming out of the communities, black, white, green, blue, whatever they may be. We're not looking at the positives. We're only looking at the negatives. Absolutely. And that's what I think. And I think that's where we need to start focusing. And I hope um, my program does it just a little bit because I know how many people listen and everything else or watch. But I think what you're doing is is amazing that you have this energy, even with everything you've been through from the drug addiction to pulling yourself up to going to college to get your, your master's degree and doing all these things that you're doing. It is amazing to me that you still have the energy to do it. And you have to be one of these individuals that just don't stop and how your husband keeps up with you is probably amazing.
1: (laughs) He's sitting right here. So, <laughs> listen, I wouldn't be able to do any of this, you know, without my husband. I have a husband that loves me and supports me, and he loves me in my brokenness. Like people, you know, they see me out giving, we, we fed over 100,000 people from a corner in West Philadelphia since last year, May of last year, right? So people see me out here and they see me giving out food and they see me fighting gun violence and they see me engaging these young people and they see me, you know, uh, hiring adults for same day pay, but they don't see me when I'm in a fetal position in my bed. They don't see me when I can barely move because the trauma that lives in my body, I I was recently diagnosed with arthritis in my spine, right? Mm. They don't see me when I can't stop crying because I'm so worried about now my daughter's mortality. They don't see me when I'm worried about my grandchildren who don't have fathers because of nothing that they did wrong, but because people who shouldn't have had guns had guns. That's why I fight. I wish I didn't have to do this fight, you know, but I have to. I don't
0: have a choice. I'm looking at your website right now, and the woman I see on here, there is no way that anybody can get her down because you look, you are the strongest looking individual that I think I've ever seen, let alone messing with you, because I think you could take anybody down that gets in your way. (laughs) I can try. (laughs) So, where do you see the next few years? of the program and of everything you're doing.
1: Yeah, so right now um, we're about to have our 10th Annual Gala with the Charles Foundation on December 17th. We're going to be giving out scholarships um, to young people, and we're going to have our young people that we pay through the same day work program come to get honored at our gala. Um, But we're going to keep working with the young people. You know, that's how we change it, right? We got to get to them younger and younger. I'm going to keep fighting to make sure that GVI gets funded. I'm going to keep working with you know, we have some really good legislators in Philadelphia, city and state level Mm -hmm. um, who really want to stop this problem. I'm going to continue to work with them. um, But I'm going to continue to promote this book because the one thing that I understand about my book is for number one, Bill, I have a voice and I have a platform, right? And while I've been through a whole string of situations that make me who I am, I'm not unique. You know, how many people are child um, survivors of molestation? How many people are adult survivors of rape? How many people are um, survivors of drug addiction and domestic violence? You know, how many people are adult late bloomers and, and went back to school? I wrote this book to give people hope. And not one, I don't plan on making one penny off the book. You know, I'm I'm printing the book myself, I'm publishing the book myself, and I'm donating this book to men and women in recovery, because I know that if nothing else, that all of my pain and my trauma is meant to give someone else hope, right? It's meant to let someone else know that no matter what firestorm you go through in this life, that you too can rise above the ashes and ascend.
0: With you saying that, and, I, and it, it just popped into my head, you mentioned earlier about your kids are being the ones that wanted, that made you turn yourself around that they were the motivating factor. If your kids were not part of the picture, do you think you would have still done this or would you just kept in the, in the lifestyle that you were living before?
1: I probably would have died. To be totally honest, here's the thing. And, and I say this and I think that's why, you know, me losing my sons is so devastating. I don't know anybody else's relationship with their children. But my children have saved my life on more than one occasion, right? So to lose the very people who I've lived my entire adult life for, it doesn't make sense to me. I can't wrap my mind around it. But the one thing I am, Bill, is very, very faithful, right? And and I trust God. And I don't ask why. For number one, I'm never going to know the answer to that question. So why torture myself with that question? What I ask God is what? I don't ask him why. I ask them, what? What do you want to come out of this? What is it that you want me to be doing? What do I need to help somebody else to not suffer the devastation that I live with each and every day? You know, people see me. I'm a public figure. They, they consider me celebrity and they see me and they judge me and they don't have a clue who I am. Who am I? I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a grandmother. I'm just a woman who fought every day of her life to protect her children
0: and could clinton. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, before I let you go, there is a wall of trophies behind you that I guarantee that my audience who's watching this are trying to figure out what they are and whose they are, and I'm sure a few of those of your sons.
1: So this whole shelf, except for the one in the center, are my sons and my daughter's trophies. My son Charles played football. He was very, very good. Um, So they're
0: Charles's trophies, and they're my daughter Charlene's cheerleading trophies. Oh, okay. Because I was, I've been looking at them and I'm going, wow, there's a lot of trophies up there. Yeah. And again, um, what, you, what you just said and what you're doing is amazing and miraculous. And I know it's, it's taxing on you. And, and just listening to you, you're very passionate about it. And I wish you the best of luck in the world with everything you're doing. I wish you the best of luck on the sale of the book. And I'd love to have you back again when the next book comes out. So we can talk about that and also talk about the progress of what the organization is doing from from now until the future.
1: Absolutely. So the second book is scheduled to come out. It's, it's named Phoenix Ascending Inferno. That's scheduled to come out on Dante's birthday, April 30th. And then there is also a documentary that is coming out in June um, entitled Murders That Matter. And that's on me and my activism. And then there's a play that's coming out right after the documentary. Wow.
0: I, 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 again, that's fantastic that you're, you're getting this message out there and you're doing it in different mediums so people can actually take it in whichever way they can and the best way they can do it because you're giving them that opportunity.
1: Absolutely. But I would love to come back on the show. I so appreciate you having me on today, Bill.
0: Well, Movita, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you, Bill. You
1: too. Good night.
0: Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Movita Johnson Hurrell. Great conversation today. Hopefully you learned something because I know I did too. And it's great to hear someone with that much passion trying to end gun violence in her community and maybe nationally someday too. And don't forget her book, uh, Phoenix Ascending, is now available on Amazon. I will post links to that in our description here on the page. If you're watching us on TV, you can check that out on -on one-on-one with Bill.com. And you'll be able to find all the information there also Guys, thank you very much for uh, taking part in the program today. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time here, one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Thank you for listening to one-on-one with Bill Alexander. One-on-one with
1: Bill Alexander is a million dollar baby production. For more information, go to billalexander.net.